Hi everyone, this is Jeannie Poole. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of HeartRhythm02. This is the October 2023 podcast. We have a nice group of papers to discuss and I'll be summarizing them with their key points. First paper is an editorial titled Management of Arrhythmias During Pregnancy by Drs. Albertini and Spears. This is a summary of the recent 2023 HRS expert consensus statement on the management of arrhythmias during pregnancy. This is a really great editorial that briefly summarizes this very important document. The consensus document fulfills a real need for helping us to understand further the management of gestational arrhythmias. The next paper is authored by Dr. Omer Aldas and colleagues. The name of the paper is Safety and Acute Efficacy of Catheter Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation with Pulse Field Ablation versus Thermal Energy Ablation, a Meta-Analysis of Single Proportions. The authors provide the following key findings. First, the results of this meta-analysis show that there are significantly fewer complications with pulsed field ablation compared with thermal ablation. Second, there is no statistically significant difference in the rate of recurrent atrial arrhythmias between PFA and thermal ablation when looking at studies with follow-up out to one year, although follow-up data with PFA are limited. And then thirdly, among the studies with both PFA and thermal ablation arms, there were no differences in fluoroscopy or procedure times. However, among studies that reported left atrial dwell times, the time was less than one hour in the PFA group. The object of this study was to evaluate both the clinical outcomes and the response to ablation of potential drivers in patients who had recurrent and persistent AF recurrence after prior pulmonary vein isolation. 100 persistent AF patients were studied. They all underwent cryo-balloon PBI, and they had ECGI phenotyping of persistent AF that was based on driver burden and distribution to predict response to pulmonary vein isolation. The author's key findings are, first, this two-step approach, which included pulmonary vein isolation at index procedure followed by redo catheter ablation guided by electrocardiographic imaging if required, led to freedom from atrial fibrillation at one year following their last procedure of 75% and 73% off of antiarrhythmics. Their second key finding was that ablation of drivers guided by electrocardiographic imaging at the redo procedure led to an acute ablation response in 77% of the patients. And then third, potential drivers were identified in all patients with atrial fibrillation recurrence, with the majority being rotational, 77.6%. The majority of potential drivers were mapped to the left atrium, followed by the right atrium, and then the septum. Next up is a paper titled Clinical Outcomes of Automatic Algorithms in Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This is by Dr. Leonardo Kanichik and Associates. The authors performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials in patients with CRT using automatic algorithms that change the A, V, and the VV intervals dynamically. They then performed a subgroup analysis, including intracardiac electrogram-based algorithms and contractility-based algorithms. Their first key finding is, this was a systematic review meta-analysis including heart failure patients with cardiac resynchronization therapy devices. Second key finding, the study compared automatic algorithms using intracardiac electrograms or intracardiac sensors versus usual care echocardiography-guided optimization. And third, that automatic algorithms did not improve clinical outcomes such as mortality, heart failure hospitalization, or clinical improvement. 
The title of the next paper is Transvenous Lead Extraction, Efficacy and Safety of the Procedure in Female Patients by Dr. Luca Segretti and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the safety and efficacy of mechanical transvenous lead extraction in female patients. This was a retrospective study performed on 3,051 patients. This was divided into group one, which was female patients, and group two, which was male patients, and this was all done at a single tertiary referral center. The author's key findings include that, one, female patients demonstrated slightly lower rates of radiologic success with transvenous lead extraction compared to males, which was a significant p-value of 0.003. Second, despite the lower radiologic success, Clinical success rates between female and male patients were not statistically different, 97.2 versus 97.5%. Third, female patients experienced higher rates of major complications, 1.33% versus 0.60%, and procedural mortality, 0.4% versus 0.1%. And finally, after multivariate analysis, female sex emerged as the only significant predictor of major complications, including death, with an odds ratio of 3.96. The next paper is Use of Acoustic Cardiography to Assess Left Ventricular Electromechanical Synchronization During Left Bundle Branch Pacing by Dr. Zhang-Hao Wu and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to explore whether electromechanical activation time can confirm that left bundle branch pacing produces more satisfactory LV electromechanical synchronization than conventional right ventricular pacing. The study was performed in 55 patients. The first key finding is that electromechanical activation time, or EMAT, is an acoustic cardiographic parameter. Second, prolonged EMAT indicates desynchronous electromechanical coupling and consequent regional delay in the activation of the left ventricular walls. Third, left bundle branch pacing provided a more rapid electrical mechanical response in terms of short EMAT, whereas prolonged EMAT characterized right ventricular apical pacing and right ventricular high septal pacing, implying an impaired mechanical response. And finally, acoustic cardiography might be a helpful addition when identifying the ideal pacing position. The title of the next paper is Syncope and Loss of Consciousness After Implantation of a Cardioverter Defibrillator in Patients with Brigada Syndrome, Prevalence and Characteristics in Long-Term Follow-Up. This is a retrospective analysis of 112 patients with Brigada syndrome, all of whom were implanted with an ICD. The patients were separated into three groups, those who had loss of consciousness, which was 46 patients, those who were asymptomatic, 35 patients, and those who had ventricular tachyarrhythmias, which was 31 patients. And then they looked at the incidence and cause of loss of consciousness over the long-term follow-up period following ICD implant. Their first key finding is that syncope is a significant product prognostic factor in patients with Brigada syndrome. Second loss of consciousness may be due to non-arrhythmic syncope, and thus by investigating post-implantable cardioverter defibrillator loss of consciousness events in detail, the underlying cause of the loss of consciousness may be determined. Third, approximately 40% of all of their patients experienced loss of consciousness after ICD implant. Ventricular tachyarrhythmia was the most common cause of loss of consciousness. However, 13% of them had non-arrhythmic causes, which was similar to their initial episode. And these causes were epilepsy predominantly and neurally mediated syncope. Distinguishing epilepsy from ventricular tachyarrhythmias can be challenging because epilepsy and ventricular tachyarrhythmias in Brigada syndrome 
share similar symptoms and situations. And then finally, after repeated electroencephalographies and other neurologic examinations, the patients could be finally diagnosed with epilepsy-related loss of consciousness. When loss of consciousness recurs without ICD therapy, epilepsy can be considered in the differential diagnosis and further investigations should be conducted. The next paper is a basic research paper. The title is Innate Immune Signaling in Hearts and Buccal Mucosa Cells of Patients with Arrhythmogenic Cardiomyopathy by Dr. Carlos Buenobetti and Associates. In this study, the authors looked at myocardium from ACM patients who died suddenly or required cardiac transplantation. They also looked at buccal mucosal cells from young subjects who had inherited disease alleles. The authors have four key findings. The first is that nuclear factor KB or NFKB signaling cascade, a major driver of the innate immune response, is activated in cardiac myocytes in patients with arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. Second, NFKB signaling in cardiac myocytes in arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy is associated with myocardial accumulation of cells expressing CCR2, which are known to mediate tissue injury and fibrosis. Third, given the involvement of NFKB signaling pathways in arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, anti-inflammatory therapy might be a benefit for those with clinically active disease. And as NFKB signaling is also activated in buccal mucosal cells at the time of cardiac disease onset or exacerbation, evaluation of buccal mucosal cells could be useful to monitor arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy activity and response to therapy. The next paper is in our Global Voices section. The title of this paper is Retrieval of Fragmented Coronary Sinus Catheter in the Right Atrium, a First Novel Multidisciplinary Approach in Sub-Saharan Africa. This is by Drs. Yona Gandhi and Associates. The authors note that over the past five years, 48 EP procedures for SVT have been performed at their center. They present the case of a 40-year-old woman who was undergoing an SVT study and ablation, where the seven-franc sheath that was placed through the left femoral vein became sheared and required snaring and removal at the end of the case. They were able, however, to complete the case successfully with a new diagnostic catheter and successfully ablate the slow pathway. The next paper is an animal study. The title of the paper is Comprehensive Dose Response Study of Pulsed Field Ablation Using a Circular Catheter Compared with Radiofrequency Ablation for Pulmonary Vein Isolation, a preclinical study. This is by Dr. Jonathan Shu and colleagues. This is a study where the authors used 12, 12 male Yorkshire pigs who underwent ablation procedures using um, PFA and the Biosense Webster PFA ablation system. The animals were evaluated in four study groups. Three of them received PFA treatment at low dose, one application per location, and four applications per pulmonary vein. Second, or nominal dose, which was three applications per location, and 12 applications per pulmonary vein. And high dose, which was six applications per location, and 24 applications per pulmonary vein and one control group that received RF therapy with 35 or 50 watts at equal to or less than 60 seconds, and then the animals were survived for 28 days post-ablation and underwent follow-up electrophysiology studies before being euthanized. The key findings from this study is that first, in this preclinical study, the authors evaluated the efficacy and safety of low, nominal, and high doses of intracardiac post-field ablation compared with radiofrequency ablation in a porcine model, and aimed to establish a dose-response relationship that could inform clinical study designs. 
Second, that 30 days after ablation, complete pulmonary vein isolation was observed in 100% of the PFA-treated and 83% of the radiofrequency-treated animals. Third, histopathology showed that transmural lesions outside of the pulmonary vein were observed less frequently in the low-dose group, while in the high-dose group, regression in lesion volume on the posterior wall was seen over 30 days, indicating regeneration of ablated tissue at the periphery of the lesion. And finally, the nominal dose of PFA, 12 applications per pulmonary vein, resulted in transmurality throughout the atria and represents the optimal amount of PFA energy that provided permanent lesion placement and safety in this study. This is a case report where the authors describe a case of inappropriate classification of ventricular tachycardia as superventricular tachycardia by an implantable defibrillator due to far-field R-wave sensing. Well, that brings us to the end of the October 2023 podcast. Thank you all for listening, and in a month, we'll be back with the November 2023 HRO2 issue.